Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. Hey, welcome back to our Old Testament Overview podcast, and we're uh, shifting gears a little bit today. Up to this point, we have been covering the historical books, um, starting in Genesis and running all the way through First and Second Kings, and we are going to kind of change today and be hopping around a good bit through the prophets, and this can be an intimidating section of scripture. We're, we're going to try to just do some summary things about prophecy in general on this episode, and then walk through a few of the prophets who were prophesying during the divided kingdom, which yeah. we looked at in the last episode. We joked about it at the beginning of our, uh, I guess it was second or, second or third episode, that most Bible reading plans kind of tank off when you get to Leviticus. Well, if you power through those sections of Scripture, get through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Samuel, oftentimes it's at these prophets where people trail back off <laughs> because it just doesn't seem relevant to us sometimes it doesn't we don't always get the language or really we don't always understand the metaphors that are being used sometimes and it can be really easy to just say yeah those prophets said some good things um, but it's not really relevant to us but that's not the case these prophets are still very much so saying truths that we need to understand and that kind of leads us into kind of defining the first part of this is really the word prophet. What is a prophet? Yeah, I, I think we often kind of carry with the idea of a prophet, someone that like tells the future. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know. Uh, you say, I'm no prophet, but I think this is going to yeah, happen or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And it's just somebody who's looking ahead and saying, this is what I think is going to happen. Or, or even is saying, you know what, I got a word from God and he said this is going to happen in 100, 270 years, you know, whatever. And so they're just telling the future. But when you get into reading the prophets in the Old Testament, they do tell some things that are going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. But they do more than that. They do a lot of preaching. And that's why we titled the episode Preaching and Prediction. Those two things would go hand in hand with one another quite a bit. Yeah. And, and so a lot of what the prophets are being sent by God to do is to speak on his behalf. Uh, they'll say, thus says the Lord and then tell what God wants. And sometimes that is something future. There's going to be some of the coolest evidences in the prophets to talk about hundreds of years before Jesus came, some very specific prophecies about his coming and his birth, where he was going to be born and what kind of person he was going to be. Powerful, powerful things. But more often than not, the prophets were speaking to the people in their day about problems going on in the nation of Israel, or in other nations, as we'll talk about as well. But they were preachers about as much as they were telling the future. And that's also prophecy. Right. The idea of being a prophet is like being the mouthpiece of God. God is the one speaking through the prophet to the people. And I hope if we emphasize anything in last week's episode is that a lot of the kings, all the kings in the north and several of the kings in the south were wicked. The, the, The people were constantly living, reliving the days of the judges where they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And so we left off last week with a stinky nation. They weren't following God. They were relying on themselves, and God will punish them for that. And so these prophets or preachers will come in, and the extent of their message will be, hey, you're pretty messed up. You've fallen away. You're not doing what you originally said you were going to do. And as a result, if you don't straighten up, 
this is what can happen in the future. So they would prophesy of what's going to happen if they don't straighten up. And um, Stephen's got for us in our notes this uh, prophetic paradigm that I think is a really helpful way to illustrate the different kinds of things you're going to hear from the prophets. Yeah, and so this was presented to me a while back, and what this is, is it's not trying to, you know, cubbyhole the prophets and say this is the only way to read them, but there are eight, uh, I don't know, general, like, categories that you can fit the things in the prophets, the things that they say, you can fit them into one of eight categories. And this is just a helpful way to kind of figure out, okay, what is even going on here? (laughs) What are they saying? And so the first one is revelation. Well, actually, I'll I'll just list all eight. Uh, I don't know if you're taking notes or not, but I'll list all eight and then we'll kind of walk through them. Uh, The first one is revelation. The second one is election. Uh, The third one is rebellion. Fourth one is judgment. The fifth one is compassion. The sixth one, repentance the seventh one, restoration, and the eighth one, consummation. Um, and again, there's probably other ways to do this. Uh, don't take this as like the only way to read the prophets. But the first one is revelation. And this one is the simplest. It's just those thus says the Lord yeah. passages. And it's fascinating as you read through the prophets and God tries to make it clear to the prophets, um, one, you're going to people who aren't going to listen to you. But two, you're not on your own. You're using my words. Uh, and we'll look at examples of that in a little bit. But these prophets, they were inadequate just as themselves, but with the word of the Lord, that is what made them powerful, and that's what they had to rely on, and it's mm-hmm. what we rely on, too. And it wasn't popular what they had to say. I mean, the Lord often gave them messages that he said, this is going to be bitter for you. I mean, people are not going to want to hear you. They're going to be hard-headed. They're going to be stubborn. They're going to reject you, but you have to say my words. Yep. That is the one job of a prophet is to speak the words of God. And let's just be real here. There were a lot of false prophets. Yes. And we read about them in the Old uh, Testament yeah. as well. And, and even in the prophets, we read right. about false prophets. Yeah, sometimes it was literally like a showdown. I mean, I think about like Elijah and Mount Carmel, yeah. you know, one versus like 450 prophets of Baal. Um, but there are other times where, you know, Micah or Isaiah or people were prophesying, and then there were other prophets giving easy-to-hear messages yeah. and things that the people wanted to yeah. hear. They were probably more popular because they were you know, telling people what they want to hear. And we don't have to look very far today to see the same kind of thing is still going on. I don't believe we have modern-day prophecy like we are talking about this kind of prophecy. Uh, That's another story for another time. But the idea of people taking the Word of God and twisting it to just be what people want to hear, man, that's been around forever, and that's still going on. So you have people who are saying, thus says the Lord, and it's actually from God. And then other people saying, thus says the Lord, but it's just what people want to hear. Right. And so we have to watch out. So that's the first one, Revelation. Yeah. The second one is election. And uh, it's kind of an example of that is, I brought you out of Egypt. You hear God do that a lot in the prophets and even in the narrative of Chronicles, Kings, and Samuel. Um, where Before he says something hard to the people, he will say, hey, you guys are like my kids. I, I brought you up out of Egypt. You were slaves there, and I saved you out of that. It kind of reminds them of the start where they were elected, where they were brought out. Um, he'll Reminding talk them about who they are. Yeah, he'll talk about at times the covenant that he had with Abraham and with Jacob and with Isaac and and all those forefathers, and, and remind them of you guys aren't just some random group of people to me, but you are my children, and that's going to be really important for them to remember as he's about to chastise them or, or punish them for their sin. That's right. 
And so the third one is rebellion. And again, this is kind of going, some of the, several of these are historical in nature. They'll kind of review, hey, like, here's what I did for you, and yet here's what you did in return. Um, and rebellion is that, you know, they went from me. The more I went after them, the more they turned away from me. Yeah. Uh, Hosea 11 is a amazing example of a, several of these. And again, when we're reading through these categories, it's not like, the whole book is one of them. It's a, all of these categories are kind of sprinkled throughout, uh, even sometimes verse to verse. There's multiple categories sometimes. But again, this just gives us a, a feel for what the prophets are doing. So God will describe their rebellion. He'll describe their sins. And sometimes he'll name, you know, hey, you are pressing the poor or you are there's violence in the streets. No, no one trusts anybody because you all are liars. And so he will name their sins often. Um, and that leads right into the fourth uh, category uh, is judgment. All right, because you have sinned for three transgressions of Israel and for four, <laughs> like Amos will say, uh, then they're, they're going to go into captivity or they're going to return to Egypt, so to speak. Um, and he'll talk about judgment. And this is a little bit of that fore- foretelling part of it. In the future, if you do not repent, these calamities are going to come on yeah. you. But God is also super merciful, and he's also super compassionate. And that kind of leads to the next one, which is he's compassionate with them. He he at times will express his desire to want to keep them and not have to go through with this. How can I give them up, you know, that when they are my children? But God's just nature, he's going to give them up uh, if they continue in this willful act of rebellion uh, that we've already talked about. You know, people talk about the God of the Old Testament being like a God of wrath, and then the God of the New Testament being a God of love. But some of the greatest passages about God's compassion and his mercy and grace are in the Old Testament, and some of them are in the prophets. Again, I like Hosea 11 for that, where he's just almost having this internal battle with himself. Like, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim, like these cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah? He's like, I'm God and not man. I'm not going to come in wrath. He doesn't want to have to punish Israel, his beloved child, so to speak. But he's a just God, Mm -hmm. and he, he, he punishes them to try to purify them and to try to get a remnant that's going to really serve him. And so we'll talk more about that in a minute, but you can't miss God's compassion. There's, there's a lot of wrath in the prophets, for sure. But it's even God's compassion that tells them about his wrath. Right. It's like, hey, I, I'm not okay with your sin. I'm not going to leave you in your sin. I want to turn you from your wicked ways to bless you. And so the call of these prophets, as we look at this paradigm, is to call these people to repentance. We want you to turn around. God doesn't want you to stay the way that you are, but you're going to have to turn around altogether. And so that will really be the the crux of the prophet's message is repent, stop what you're doing, turn around, turn back to God. And uh, and some of the prophets we'll talk about today, we learn that they will heed the warning. Um, The people will, but the majority do not. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it is going to be bad for them if they don't. You know, uh, a few seasons ago when we studied the book of James, it says, as an example of endurance, take the prophets who prophesied in the name of the Lord. And man, the prophets had to have endurance because over and over again, they're saying, return, repent, please come back. They're pleading on behalf of the Lord. And the people just don't listen, yeah. don't even want to hear it. And they, and they persecute some of them. They kill some of them. Yeah. And um, it, it's scary to see how, uh, just how that often continues. So 
the last two are, are really looking to the future for Israel if they do repent or even or after they're punished. Um, restoration is number seven, and restoration is has to do more with like the physical uh, future of the nation. Like, hey, after seventy years of captivity, you're going to come back to this land. I'm going to gather you back. I'm going to restore you. The temple's going to be rebuilt. Things like that that are having to do with the physical nation of Israel, and then all this is preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. But number eight is consummation which is tied to restoration, but it's really talking more about the messianic future, Jesus coming, a spiritual nation. And again, it wasn't always clear in the prophets like what that was going to be. A lot of people had a very physical kingdom expectation yeah. after reading the prophets. And I can see where, without knowing that's the way it was going to be, where they would get that idea. But when you read the New Testament and how they quote the prophets, they're like, no, like, this is what God wanted. He, all nations are going to come together. It's not just going to be Israel, a physical nation. It's going to be people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And it's going to be a beautiful, glorious future. All the nations are going to be in on this. And God's going to consummate his plan. He's going to bring it all together through his Messiah, yeah. who's this mysterious figure in prophecy but there's a glorious future ahead, and almost all of the prophets end with this vision of hope yes. in the future. They're not just doom and gloom. I had a good friend of mine once say that the prophets always have restoration on the horizon. Mm. Whenever you're sitting there reading the doom and gloom sections of these prophets, you can almost anticipate and go, in the next chapter, I bet he's going to talk about some restoration. And it happens. That's what that's what ends up happening at the end of the section or, or at the end of the book, like Stephen said. That's often where that takes place. Because God always had a plan. And that obviously points to Jesus Christ. So many of the New Testament quotes about who Jesus is and why he's so important come back to what these prophets that we're talking about today had to say. Um, there was a restoration of, short, of sorts when they would come back to the land but there was an even greater restoration that was going to come through Jesus Christ. And that's talked about a lot in the New Testament, obviously. Yes. So so how do we how do we sum up? Let me explain. Yeah, how do no, we there's too much. Let me sum up. How do we break them down? Um what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at an overview of four prophets. Actually, there's eight total that we're going to try to mention on the show today. Uh, we're not going to go through all eight of these. Uh, there's a lot of text. But just to try to categorize them at least a little bit chronologically, um, there are four prophets, one of the major prophets, uh, those first five, and then the 12 minor prophets, uh, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, if you want to use the acronym IHAM, I-H-A-M, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah. All go, they all go together chronologically because some of the prophets will tell us, hey, it was during the days of these kings of Judah or Israel uh-huh. that they prophesied. And these four prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, are during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Yeah, And this is right just leading up to the time where the northern kingdom, yes. Israel, would be taken into captivity. One thing that's interesting is you see a concentration of prophets shortly before times of great judgment. God is sending the prophets as a warning over and over. Please repent, yeah. please, please repent, please repent. And then they don't, 
and then ju- comes the judgment. And as we talked about last week, the, the northern tribes will end up getting taken into captivity and uh, Assyria's on the heels of, of Judah coming down to take them. And thankfully, they heed the warnings of the prophet. They plead of, for of repentance Isaiah. of Isaiah that yeah. we're, we're about to talk about. And um, they relent. They God sends them out. And so that leads us into talking about Isaiah. Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation, which for this particular generation is going to be really important for them to know. And it starts off by discussing who the kings of the day were. But then uh, I often don't like subtitles in Bibles. Uh, They can sometimes distract from what the text is saying. But my subtitle here for chapter 1 says, God has had enough. And (laughs) I think that's actually a really good subtitle for what's going on here. God explains to them the just how stinky they've gotten and that he's fed up with their behavior. Um, uh, just to give you a sampling of what God has said to them here, um, he says, in this is in Isaiah 1, in verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats, lambs. When you come to appear before me, who, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing, uh, bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Um... And then what's really cool right after that is some restoration language already. Uh, yeah. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Um, but you see just how fed up God is with the sin of this people. Yeah, This isn't just some God who's, who's all of a sudden decided he's going to take his wrath out on them, but this is a, a God that has been slow to anger, and this people have taken him for granted up to this point. Yeah, that's right. And so a lot of the book of Isaiah is going to be like this. It's going to be descriptions of the sin of Israel. But one of the other things we'll see in Isaiah in a a large section, starting in like chapter 13 and following, is he's going to proclaim judgment not just on God's people, but on a lot of the other nations Mm -hmm. that kind of go down the line and and, and include several different nations, um, Assyria and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and like all these different nations. And one of the reasons for that is that Israel in the north and also at times Judah in the south, when there were times of political turmoil and nations were coming against them, they were tempted to turn to political alliances and say like, hey, uh, if we can get Syria on our side, if we can get uh, the Egyptians on our side, then they'll protect us. They they will uh, be our refuge and our shelter. And we'll, we'll be able to survive as a nation because these other nations will protect us. And God's saying, no, trust me. I, yes. I'll protect you. If you lean on these other nations, they're just going to betray you. And ultimately, they're going to be destroyed. So don't trust in these nations. Their judgment is coming as well. And so you'll see this as an example in lots of the different prophets. They're not just talking to Israel but they're proclaiming judgment against other wicked nations as well, which is just a reminder that, like, God is not just picking on one nation. He's the God over all nations, right. ultimately, and he sees sin in any people and punishes and rewards as he sees fit. And 
the thing with Egypt specifically, when we see Judah running back to Egypt, it just calls to mind what happened whenever they ran to Egypt last time. They ended up staying there much longer than they wanted to. They ended up becoming an enslaved people. And God is trying to reason with them, saying, hey, Egypt's not your savior, but I can be um, if you will just turn to me. And so uh, th- this people, they've forgotten it. Um, they're, they've just decided not to follow it anymore. And so that's exactly right, that God will, will call down destruction on these foreign nations as well in this book. And Isaiah delivers that message well. Yeah, and Isaiah's kind of cool because it divides into two halves. Um, Isaiah 1 through 39 uh, is largely uh, talking about the time period leading up to the destruction of the northern kingdom and talking about how, you know, judgment's going to come. And actually there's a whole historical section at the very end of that that goes through the the history of what happened. And then starting in Isaiah 40, there's a real shift in the book. And Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, it's 66 chapters long. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, really long book. But there's a lot more hope in the latter half. And again, it's not only judgment, only hope, but it's kind of um, divided that way. But in the latter half of Isaiah, we have some of the most famous prophecies about Jesus. Yes. Probably the most famous is Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that is just incredible to just read with people, and maybe even people who don't have a lot of familiarity with the Bible, and just to say, who do you think this is talking about? Because yeah. you don't have to read very much for people to realize, wait a minute, what, who, this is Jesus. Yeah. Like, look at, listen to this. So I'm reading from Isaiah 53, uh, just for instance, verses 4 uh, through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And it's just powerful to think about that the people in the days of Isaiah did not fully understand what this was talking about. And in fact, in the New Testament, there's a guy in Acts chapter 8 that we talked about, the the eunuch, the the Ethiopian treasurer um, riding back to Africa, was reading from this passage in Isaiah. And he's like, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip, who'd been led by the Spirit to that chariot, is like, all right. (laughs) That doesn't say that in the text, but I'm sure he was excited to say, he starts right this passage and he tells him the good news about Jesus. And so in prophecy, it wasn't always a like very clear future prediction. There are these dark shadows of what's going to happen. It doesn't say exactly who it's going to be. But in retrospect, we look back and see this fits exactly what Jesus is going to do as he comes and is killed. He is crucified uh, for our sins. And some of the most striking statements about that are here in the prophets, 700 years before Jesus is even born. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. And so uh, we don't have time to to go through every chapter, but if there's one chapter we're going to take time for, it's chapter 53. Um, well, that kind of brings us to a, another prophet named Hosea. And Hosea is 
one of the more unique reads, I think, of an Old Testament prophet, just because we learn a lot about his home life. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, he is called upon to take a wife of, of that's a harlot, a prostitute, and uh, ends up losing that wife, has to go and buy her back, and she's unfaithful to him. And it's just kind of this big metaphor that God is trying to communicate is exactly what Israel or his people um, has done to him. They have been unfaithful to him time and time again. He's taken them back, and yet there's going to come a time where he's done. And that's what's happened with Judah at this point. That's right. And so Hosea, again, the prophets weren't just preaching a message. Sometimes they were called on to live out their message. And that's what makes Hosea so unique is that he is the betrayed husband over and over again. And so when he tells the people about God's hurt and the betrayal that they have done to God by turning to idols and other nations and describing that, like turning to you know their their other boyfriends when God should have been their husband. He that was a deeply personal message to him, and uh, and yet it's amazing how God has Hosea take take her back over and over again, and that also is a message of hope, of like. God will still take Israel back. Um, he, he loves them, even though they've been so unfaithful so many times. And so you see both the prophets illustrate just the severity of the hurt that our sin does to God, but also the depth of the compassion and the forgiveness that God gives his people over and over and over again. And Hosea is one of the coolest passages, most amazing passages to, to talk about the, those images and those pictures. Um, one of my favorite uh, pictures is from Hosea chapter 11 uh, I referenced a minute ago and he describes Israel like this uh, Hosea 11 verse 1 when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning off idols yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk I took them up by their arms But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. And so it just describes God as this loving father, tenderly raising Israel as his own child. And the more he cares for them, the more they run away. And yet, later in this chapter, in verse 8, this is where he's having this conversation with himself. He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, which is these cities destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So these statements just give us a depth of the character of God when we see it in the prophets, we learn so much about who God is as he's speaking through them, showing his anger, his hurt, but also his compassion and his forgiveness. One of the other things that's interesting to note, specifically in Hosea, although you can see it in other prophets as well, is that God will sometimes interchangeably to, to discuss a part of the nation of Israel. He'll use like one tribe's name. So like you get the same thing with Judah in the south. But in Hosea, you get the same thing in the north with him calling them Ephraim, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Um, so don't be thrown off by that uh, if you get to reading through Hosea. That's a pretty common prophetic thing to do. 
Yes, and that's one reason that prophets can be really hard to read at first is because they use almost this code. <laughs> it's not a secret code, but like they use a way of talking that if you're not used to it, you'd be like, what, what are you even talking about? Why is why Ephraim, you know? But when you start to realize, oh, Ephraim is just a way of saying the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh, okay, like, that makes more sense. Yeah. And so as you go through what I found, uh, for me it was the book of Amos that was like a key for me. Like once I kind of understood the book of Amos, which is the next one we'll talk about here, it like made the rest of the prophets make a lot more sense to me. And so sometimes you just have to kind of sit with one prophet and kind of stew in it for a while, learn the lingo, yeah. and figure out, oh, okay. So that's the kind of thing they mean when they say this kind of thing. Right. And once you start to get it, it just kind of opens up the rest of the prophets because they use a lot of similar language. Yeah. And Amos is one of those that you learn a little bit about his home life. Um, some of the prophets, they just kind of like drop in. You don't really know anything about them. And then there's some that you get a little bit of information about. For Amos, we learn that he was from the sheep herders, uh, sheep herders, <laughs> the sheep herders from Tekoa, um, which is kind of cool. So he was a shepherd. It's kind of funny that, that we call him a shepherd and not a sheep herd. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah. Carry on. Maybe that is how that happened. But simply my point is what, what a fitting role uh, for him to serve as a prophet that's also had experience with being a shepherd is kind of my point. Yep. And it's kind of funny later on, he says, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet uh, in this book, which I think the idea there is like not professionally. Uh, some of the prophets were just normal guys who God chose and then took him. And, you know, so some some of the prophets were kind of trained in that type of being a holy person from the time of their youth. Um, kind of like uh, Eli and Samuel, like Samuel was brought up, you know, around the temple and, um, you know, kind of training under Eli in some ways. But uh, Amos, no, dude, he was just like a sheep herder, a tender of figs, I think he calls him later in the book. Mm, and um, Blue collar worker. Yeah, he's a normal guy. And God's like, hey, Amos, I want you to take my word to the people of Israel. And he does. And... Um, he has a lot of patterns in his talking for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. I will not revoke its punishment in chapters one and two. But um, what's interesting with, with several of the prophets is to see how they bring things back around. And Amos is significant because in Amos 9, at the end of his book, there's a passage that's going to be quoted in the New Testament in Acts 15. And he says in Amos 9, uh, verse 11, and this is talking about the future. This is one of those consummation passages. Yep. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And this passage is quoted by James, the brother of Jesus, in Acts 15. It's kind of the final word on, hey, even the prophets agree that the Gentiles, the nations, are going to wear God's name. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to see how, again, they would not have understood that when Amos was first prophesying, but these things were written down. They were preserved. The Israelites read these prophets through the centuries. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and starts his mission and they start picking up, hey, wait a minute, we've read this before. We've seen this stuff. And hey, now the message is going to the nations. The prophets talked about that too, yep. you know, and, and they start to put it all together. And um, so it's really cool that we have these prophets recorded for us as well. So, so many times they feel so foreign. And yet when we see these little messages that come through in Jesus, we're like, oh, yeah, this is all one story. Yep. It's just cool to see the connections. It really is. That brings us over to the prophet Micah. 
Um, and Micah just, just means who is like Yahweh, which is super cool to, to think about. All these prophets kind of have names like that, which is neat. And Micah is what we would call a contemporary of Isaiah, um, which is uh, just another way of saying that they were co-workers isn't the right word but they perhaps something at the same time yeah exactly and so um micah in a similar vein to isaiah is going to say y'all have been stinky but there's restoration if you will repent and in fact there is a section in micah that is the same section in isaiah the second chapter it's kind of cool to see yes and there are there is overlap the more you read one of the prophets it will help you to understand the rest of the prophets because they use similar language but one of the most striking is isaiah chapter 2 and micah chapter 4 yes. that are just really really almost verbatim word for word but one of the things that stands out to me this is true of all the prophets but especially in micah is he calls out a lot of the rulers and the priests and prophets that are in his days and who he's getting to talk to and it really kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Who, if you could sum up, use one word to sum up who the priests, prophets, and rulers would be, who would be the authoritative people of the day? And they're out shouting peace when there is no peace. They're calling out to everyone saying everything's going to be all right when it's not going to be all right. And Micah is there to call them out for that and say, stop doing that. Stop telling people everything is okay when things are only going to get worse for people if you keep saying that. And you can imagine who the people tend to want to listen to. Do you, do you want to listen to the guy who's preaching that bad things are going to happen? Or do you want to listen to the guy who says, everything's fine, everything's going to be okay? You can see where it's easier to listen to that guy. Well, that's so relevant to our day, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, Paul will talk about them heaping up teachers according to their own desires, wanting to have their ears tickled, you know, is kind of what my translation says in that passage. But the idea is that people sometimes will just want to listen to those that make it easy. And that was happening in the days of Micah. And Micah stands up against that and says, no, we need to listen what, to what God has to say. Also in Micah is one of the more significant prophecies about Jesus um, that gets more specific on where he's going to be from. That's in Micah 5 in verse 2 where it says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is quoted also in Matthew 2, 6, when they're trying to figure out where the Messiah is going to come from. It's this really small city, Bethlehem, and to get more specific, Ephrathah. So it's, it's this, very, um, this very specific city that the Messiah is going to be from. Um, we're told in Micah 5 and verse 5, this one will be our peace. And we know Jesus, uh, Isaiah 9, Prince of Peace. And that's what's emphasized about Jesus in the New Testament, is that he brought peace to the world. Yeah, and that's really helpful just to see how uh, the prophets sometimes are saying more vague things that will become clear in retrospect. But sometimes they're saying very specific things, like here's where he's going to be born specifically. I also think it's cool with Micah that he is mentioned in one of the other prophets. It's not too often that the prophets cross-reference each other. But in Jeremiah chapter 26, this is way after the time of Micah, um, like a couple hundred years later, that Judah is in deep trouble, and they reference back to the time of Micah during the days of Hezekiah. And I think this is just cool. Jeremiah 26 verse 18, they say, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So it's kind of cool to see here how they point back to like how Micah was actually one of the few successful prophets that he told them, thus says the Lord. And he quotes a, a, a judgment section. That Jerusalem is going to be leveled. It's going to become a field. But then the people listened and they didn't kill Micah. They listened to him and they repented and God relented of mm -hmm. the disaster that he'd promised to bring. And so I just think that's a cool, like this little moment as we think about the prophets and what they were able to help the people do. Again, a lot of times the people didn't listen, but that was not the prophet's fault. That was their fault. The prophet did his job, whether or not the people listened. Right. They spoke the word of the Lord. But in this case, it's encouraging to see that sometimes it did get through to the people. And God's judgment relents, at least for a while, for that generation. Along with that theme, we kind of kind of switch geography a little bit from the land of Judah to the nation of Assyria. Because as we talked about in the book of Isaiah, God's prophets not only say things to God's people, but it also says it to foreign nations as well. And that's exactly where the story of Jonah picks up. Um, Jonah, we know, had been prophesying to the Israelite people. We know that from Second Kings, so it's kind of cool. Jonah also gets a shout-out back in narrative, which is really cool to see. But as we're introduced to Jonah, a lot of people know his story uh, because he got swallowed up by a big old fish. But Jonah's story is actually kind of a sad story for Jonah. He's a pitiful prophet. He's squeamish. He's kind of shifty. Um, not really trustworthy guy. And the story starts off by telling us, or the text starts off by telling us that Which, the word of the Lord... Oh, yeah, yeah, go real, ahead. Real quick, that, that reference you mentioned is Second Kings 14, uh, verse 25. Okay, if cool. If you wanted to find the reference to Jonah in that book, I just think that's cool as well. Yeah, it's very fascinating. So, um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come, upon, uh, come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, it's the capital of Assyria, and tell them that they need to repent or else they're going to be overthrown. Jonah doesn't do that. He runs away. He actually runs in the complete opposite direction that God told him to, if, you're, if you ever look at a map of what's going on here. And the story is really easy to read through. I would encourage you to do it sometime. But as Jonah runs away, he finds himself on a ship. There's a bad storm. He says, it's my fault because I've ran away from God. They throw him into the sea. A fish swallows him up. It's and saves him from drowning. Thankfully, humbles Jonah to the point that he prays to God, calls out to him in chapter 2. From the belly of the fish. From the belly of the fish. The Lord commands the fish. It vomits Jonah up onto the dry land. And guess what Jonah still had to do? Go to Nineveh. Still go do what God told him to do at the beginning. And what's crazy is we've talked about how often the prophets were rejected by God's people. But the Ninevites, the people of Assyria actually listen to Jonah. And he cries out uh, God's judgment, and they repent in sackcloth and ashes from the king all the way down, and God relents. And then Jonah gets mad because God didn't wipe them out. He didn't like Assyria. They were the bad guys. He's like, God, you're not supposed to have mercy on the bad guys. 
And yet Jonah himself is almost the the bad guy in the story. Jonah's kind of the upside-down prophet. He's so different from uh, the others. But Jonah is trying to get us to look at ourselves and and think, am I begrudging God's mercy to somebody else just because I think they're my enemy? And God had mercy on Israel at times, but God also had mercy on the other nations Mm -hmm. at times. So don't think that you have a a corner on God, like a corner of the market, so to speak, you know. He's not just your personal God. He can judge and show mercy to whoever he wishes. And that's a real important message from Jonah. It, it connects also with the book of Nahum, yeah, uh, which is kind of the little brother to Jonah. <laughs> not literally, but yeah. like we don't know Nahum nearly as well. Nahum came after Jonah, if I'm not mistaken. I think about 100 years after. Okay, yeah. Because Jonah is prophesying to Assyria, and they repent. And so God doesn't destroy Assyria. But Nahum comes a good bit later, not long before God actually destroys Assyria by using the nation of Babylon to come in and conquer them and destroy them. And so Nahum is this really dark prophet who uh, there's a lot of lament over the destruction of Nineveh in the book of Nahum. And um, it's kind of just an interesting side note is that Jonah and Nahum are the two prophets that end with a question. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting and, and they're trivia both, fact there. And they're both through Assyria, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. So Jonah and Nahum remind us that God is not just the God of Israel. He also cares about the injustice happening among the nations. But the God will also relent if another nation repents, just like he'll relent if Israel repents, like at the preaching of Micah. But he will also judge Nations that don't repent. He judged Israel when they didn't. He judged Assyria when they did not repent. And they fall to the nation of Babylon. And so the last two prophets we'll look at just briefly today are Zephaniah and Habakkuk. And they are a a good bit later. So they're they're prophesying during what we call the time frame of when it's just Judah left. After the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken into Assyrian captivity, only Judah is left in the south. And during the days of Josiah, yeah. he's one of the, I think he's the last good king yep. of Judah. But it's not long after Josiah that Babylon comes in and destroys Judah as well. Yeah. And Zephaniah starts off uh, pretty, pretty rough. It starts off in verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will remove man and beast, remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Again, you just see how fed up God is with the sin, with, with the constant running to him, running away from him, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there's judgment coming if they do not straighten up. That's right. And Zephaniah also talks about, um, he's kind of like a miniature version. He has like a lot of the elements of the other prophets, but it's kind of a miniature version of like the book of Isaiah. He's also got a lot of rhythm to him, which I think is kind of cool. Like I think about verse one or verse 15 of chapter one, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry. And I, I don't know, every time I've read through Zephaniah, it's the one thing I've noticed, it just kind of has a rhythm to it. It's like turn on a beat in the background yeah, and start reading. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it's really cool to see in Zephaniah, there's this beautiful image of God at the end of the book. In Zephaniah 3 and verse 17, uh, or we'll start in verse 16, it says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And again, most of these prophets will have some very hard things to read and, and, and wrath and anger and God's righteous indignation about the sin of the people. But they will often end with these pictures of restoration and consummation and God taking his people back, singing over them, rejoicing over them. This is a beautiful thing. The last prophet we'll look at is Habakkuk, and it's hard to date exactly when Habakkuk is prophesying, but it's what's interesting about Habakkuk is kind of Habakkuk's conversation yes. with God. Yeah. It's a short little book, but Habakkuk is just appalled that God is Babylon to judge Israel. And his objection is like, God, how can you use Babylon they're worse than we are. They are a more wicked nation than Judah. How can you do this? And he ends up learning to trust God yep. and to be quiet and to live by faith. Yeah, and God will answer him in that. Uh, he will make it very clear why this is happening, why he's willing to do this. And I think it's really cool to see that Habakkuk will humble himself and listen to what God has to say about this. Yes. And there's a famous quote that comes from Habakkuk 2 in verse 4 where he talks about, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That comes up over again. Romans, Hebrews, and I'm probably missing a couple others in the New Testament, but those are the two that stick out to me. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see where that passage is quoted in the New Testament. But at the end of Habakkuk, he has a, a little song that he sings, and it is about even though God is coming in judgment, and even though I have to see hard days, I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm still going to exalt in him, even if the vine's not blossoming anymore. I'll just read this, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Uh, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yeah. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so it's just kind of cool. This reads like the Psalms here at the end of Habakkuk. And even though judgment is coming, he still trusts in the Lord to keep his promises and to do what's ultimately right. One of my favorite other spots in Habakkuk, the other famous section of Habakkuk, I would say, is where God is kind of mocking the idea of idol worship. Uh, Habakkuk 2.18 God says, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all inside it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God kind of puts in, in its place these dumb, stupid idols that these people have erected for themselves. They're nothing. How is it that you can craft this and then say that you're the one that, uh, or that, that you're going to worship this if you're the one that's made it? Yahweh is in his holy temple. You be silent before him. It's just really putting into perspective the idolatry that these people were involved in. And guess what? The idolatry we can find ourselves wrapped up in as well. These are just earthly, temporary things. Be silent before your creator. Know that he's the Lord and be silent before him. Um, So I I think that's another really cool section of of Habakkuk that we need to heed today. That's right. And and as we read these prophets, so many 
sections feel so foreign to us. And yet once we start to see what the prophets were doing and what they were preaching, we start to realize, man, there, there really is nothing new under the sun. We struggle with the same kinds of things that they struggled with, and we need the same kinds of messages. That it can be really helpful. It can be very convicting to read the prophets and very encouraging to read the prophets. And so it's a section of scripture that we ought not to neglect because it's intimidating at first, but invest into learning the lingo of the prophets, kind of the way those go, and it will become clearer and clearer as you read it. And it's really helpful um, even as you read the New Testament and, and are able to remember, oh, yeah, they're quoting from the prophet there and see these big picture connections in all of Scripture. Well, Lord willing, we're going to continue this discussion of the prophets in a different timeline of the Old Testament next week. We're going to pick up with talking about some of these prophets that prophesied while they were in captivity. And so we'll discuss those, Lord willing, next week. Thanks for listening to the pod today. If you're enjoying what you hear, uh, please subscribe. Uh, Leave us a rating or a review. Um, If you'd like to study with us, um, any of these books that we're just skimming over or other things, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information and group studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com.